Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Big Life Podcast on Full Service Radio. We are Lina Salazar and Ingrid Vaishus, broadcasting live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Big Life brings inspiring people to talk about their stress story and what they learned from making changes. We also sit with experts, therapists, scientists, and holistic professionals who shed light on the effects of stress on our well-being and give us the tools to help us live bigger, more fulfilling lives. I'm Lina Salazar a health coach and creator of the Food Sanity Program. I work with women whose main source of stress is their relationship with food and with companies that believe in meditation as a resource for employee well-being. And I'm Ingrid Vaishus, also a health coach. I help women who are stressed, overwhelmed, and burned out prioritize their health and wellness so that they can lead more effectively and live more fulfilling lives. Today's episode will be an eye-opening one, and it's one that's close to my heart. Prior to my work as a health coach, I spent a considerable amount of time doing human rights and foreign policy work in Latin America. I was based in D.C., but had the opportunity to travel and meet so many committed people doing amazing work on the ground. I always wondered how they did what they did and what kept them going in such difficult and stressful circumstances. Our guest today is Ana Maria González Forero, Chief Sustainability Officer for the Fundación para la Educación Multidimensional, or Foundation for Multidimensional Education, FEM. For over 25 years, Ana Maria has worked organizing and advocating for the rights of vulnerable communities in Colombia. Ana will share how she found her purpose, how she manages the stress of running an organization on the ground, and some of the biggest lessons she has learned both personally and professionally. Her experience teaches us that in handling stress, we should strive for progress, not perfection. There is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to managing stress and avoiding burnout. Welcome, Anna. Hi, Lina, Ingrid. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really proud to be here. We are excited that you joined us. Thank you again for accepting our invitation. This show is 100% Colombian. We are all <laughs> Colombian, so it will have a lot of flavor, Latin flavor. Anna, let's start off by talking about yourself and how the foundation came about. Tell us a little about that. About that. Okay, well, um, 12 years ago with a group of friends, we decided that um, we wanted to tackle inequality. Uh, We thought that everybody around us was um, thinking about how to fight poverty, and we considered inequality to be a much more interesting issue because inequality is about ethics and not really about availability of resources. Colombia in particular is is a wealthy country, yet it is not distributed correctly. So it was the questions around how we distribute resources that brought us to create FEM. And what what did you do before FEM? What was your background? I am a political scientist. I uh, have a master's degree in education, and I was working in educational policy in Bogota. And that was eye-opening for that because it, it made me realize how some teachers have the biggest opportunities for learning stuff that their students really don't need because their students have all the opportunities. 
-hmm. And it is the really poor teachers or the teachers that live in very uh, and work for very impoverished communities, the ones that have the least access to resources. So it seemed that something was not well there, and that's what brought forth the foundation. So was there an aha moment, like between, like, that led to before FEM and after FEM? Was there like that aha moment? Is there a specific thing, event, something that happened that made you realize, ooh, I want to move, not move away, but shift my focus so that it is more effective or different? It, I, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a matter of starting to realize stuff, but I definitely do believe that there was one thing. I was taking a course called Developmental Activities Program for teaching kids through materials, concrete materials that you could make out of anything. And it was being taught to me in a context of private schooling in Bogota, where I knew that all the teachers that surrounded me would never use that because they had access to all these paid materials in these very expensive schools. So they were never going to be building concrete objects with caps and with keys and with bolts. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's what the training was about, and it was a very interesting thing. And I was like, I, I couldn't help but think this is set up in such a wrong way. Why are they getting this? And then the schools that I work with in the Secretary of Education, they don't, they never get access to these things. So that's not really the aha moment, but it's probably what ignited the process mm-hmm. and and what started thinking, huh? It's about distribution of opportunity. It's not really about availability of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, having said that, why don't you tell us what FEM, and when we, when we say FEM, we mean the foundation that you work at, yeah. what does FEM do? And to give our listeners a sense of um, that, what, FEM, what the foundation does, how does a, la- a day in the life of, of the foundation look like? And a okay, day in the great. life of Ana um, Maria, too. So, like the foundation <laughs> and what your yeah, days too. look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you when your when you, when your purpose is fighting inequality, it's really hard. It gets really hard, right? You have to materialize that. So we started studying Afro communities and indigenous communities. We started studying poverty, how things work in our country, and we realized that if you belong to an indigenous community or a black community in my country, especially in the Caribbean, and you're a woman you are the poorest of the poor. And so we, I, I moved out of Bogota, I moved to Cartagena, and we decided to work with rural communities that belong to these ethnic groups. And the reason why we chose that is because in particular, the Colombian legislation allows for these people a whole lot of rights that could be called reparations because the country is very conscious of the historical debts we have with indigenous and Afro-descendants. And so it would be very interesting to inform these people about their rights and then help them um, demand them or help them exercise them, which is what we really um, like to do. And so a day in my life can be um, going out to the field, usually two or three hours away from where I live. Um, How do you get um, there? To work. Um, usually we get there by boat or by, or by a, a car, like a van. Usually the roads are very bad, so it's not the distance, but the state of the transportation, the connections. These are very remote areas, even though they're not very far. Um, I love traveling by river. That's my favorite thing in the world. So, um, so it's okay when it's by boat. Um, mm-hmm. And then 
when we get to the communities, um, our intervention usually is a very fast-paced intervention because of the remoteness. So we usually spend two or three days in the field, and in those two or three days, we do as much as we can get done. So we usually travel in groups of five volunteers or more, and each volunteer has an agenda of what they have to do in the field. That way we add up all the hours and we put in a month's work in three days. So what, and sorry. We, we do things such as um, census, like house by house visiting. We take a picture, do a reference to the family. Um, that way we can start um, characterizing the state of their fundamental rights. And also we can start protecting their, um, their land um, access because most of these people don't appear in the official maps in Colombia and they are not registered as ethnic communities in Colombia. So they w if we didn't have these documents, they would be kicked out if there were development projects taking place in the land or they, they, were, they would be just considered um, not to be there because they don't appear physically, geographically in the map. What are the conditions like in most of the areas that you visit? Okay, so I, I would like to start somewhere in the back. The reason why these people are here in the first place is because they are um, black and slave people that were brought in during colonial times to Latin America um, to be labor exploited during slavery. But the story that we really don't know is that many of them escaped and they escaped to remote areas where the Spanish wouldn't go after them because they would probably get malaria or be bitten by a serpent or whatever. Mm -hmm. So these people fled into very swampy remote areas. So that is the reality today because the, the Colombian country is not very good at its rural sovereignty. So these communities have, they have ele electricity 10 years ago, they still don't have running water, they have no sewage systems, they have self-built their settlements and they have been there for 300 years. They plant their crops, they're usually fishermen, um, and the ecosystems around us in Colombia is very wealthy ecosystemically. So um, those ecosystems around them have sustained them in a very nice life for all these times. That is why it makes all the sense in the world to help them protect their territory. And when you say protect their territory, who, who is the threat, let's say? What's the role of the foundation in, or, and your role in protecting them from whom or what? Okay. The, my nonprofit itself doesn't protect them from anybody mm -hmm. uh, because the threat exists, but it is not necessarily a specific actor. It's just a specific um, philosophy of development. Mm. So because the Caribbean Basin of Colombia, and especially after the peace accords, became so strategic for investments, for ports, um, Developers and investors come to the land, and I want to stress this. Usually, they don't—they don't have. They're not doing it in bad faith. Yeah. They just come to the land, and they want to have the opportunity to develop it because it's a very strategic place. It's near Panama. It's—it—it—it it, it, it can be very profitable. They come in good faith. The government doesn't have the existence of these communities filed, so when they get asked, they are told, "No, there's nobody there. You can just buy the land." They buy it and they bought land that has people in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the threat is to be economically displaced, and that, that's the positive story. 
The negative story is that for the past 40 years, we've had paramilitary groups that have displaced people to be able to do land grabbing in a more unethical way. So um, uh, many of these people, these rural communities, fled to Cartagena and abandoned their land, but they are protected by the law of land restitution, which they are afraid to exercise because they don't know how much of a life threat there still is in their land. So land issues are structural to inequality in Colombia, and that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to protect the time that people have spent on these territories. Even if in, in the next 10 years it cannot be solved, we want to create an archive that allows for people in the future, even beyond our time, to be able to defend the land of their ancestors. That's, that's very powerful, Anna. For me, it sounds like the, the work the foundation does, it's stressful in nature, right? There are many things out of your control, and I guess it can be easy to get frustrated. You're dealing with a lot of systematic inequality and poverty and wounds of civil war, and you can easily drop the mic and quit. So what keeps you going? I, I love that question because I make that question to myself so many times in a week. I'm like... <laughs> Why am I doing this? And I always, my answer is always a sense of purpose, a sense of, the thing is the legislation protects the land for these people constitutionally. And it is also protected in an international convention called the ILO 169. So actually, even if it's not us and our legal team, in the future, another legal team, if they have the right proof, will be able to defend the land of these people. So. Basically, what I understand is that even this goes beyond my lifetime or the priorities of my very small organization. This is some, and our spirit and, and, what, we, and what we put in our, in our board in the office is land forever. Mm -hmm. So because land, in, like private property, mm -hmm. can be inherited, but it can be taken by banks, it can be taken back by the state, you can lose it. You can mm -hmm. inherit things from your parents and lose it. Ethnical land cannot be lost, mm -hmm. ever, that's awesome. for generations. That's so that's what always grounds me. I always think, okay, this is a setback. Maybe this week it won't work. Maybe the next two years are going to be harsh. But that is never as much as forever, right? So that's why it makes sense to do it. So along those lines, what has doing this work taught you about yourself and how you view success? And has it shifted throughout the years? It has shifted a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I consider myself to be an ambitious person, not in the bad sense, but in the sense that I, I want to get things done for a lot of people. Or, yeah, it's not ambitious for, for me, but really to be able to be thorough in, in what we're trying to do. And I've had to change it because of the difficulties of, op that, of operation, mm, but also because I have started to value the stories of families. For example, I know one woman in one of the rural areas. She's 86 years old. She remembers being born in the place where she is, and she remembers her grandmother telling stories about being born in the place where she is, which is called Palmarito, mm -hmm. north of Cartagena. Um, so that beach for her is her life. It has, been, it has always been there. And they are being threatened to be kicked out and when you visit her, you can see how it means 
what what it means to help that only that one woman because she has mm-hmm. 11 children and her 11 children have 56 grandchildren and so they are now a settlement mm-hmm. and it's just the story of this one woman that makes sense so so I don't know how much like uh, up to now we have protected land titles for 8000 people mm-hmm. um just imagine what that means so so I think I would love to be doing it for 200,000, but I, I already, we have already accomplished the 8,000 that we have, and we're going to go for more. Like, I really want to, for the next, in the next 10 years, achieve at least 100,000 um, land titles. Wow. The, the domino effect of that, of owning land, and it's crazy, it's huge for the development of these communities. Yeah. Right. It's, it's paramount. I mean, and it means everything because that's what they know how to do. That's mm. like the the problem with with our mindset is that we think that the only way to live is how how we live in cities. And these people, and it's really fine because you guys are well. You you work you work in well being and in relaxing. <laughs> these fishermen don't, wouldn't need that training. They spend their life in quiet mm. places, just having a beautiful life and and and. And I don't know why we're so we want to take that from them. Mm. So we, what, what I want to protect is their sense of doing in their territory what they know and have been trained in what they would want to do. Wow, that's super powerful, and I think it is a perfect transition uh, for a short break. Uh, where we've been talking to Ana Maria Gonzalez Forero, a community advocate and leader in Colombia. Uh, and we've learned a little bit about what her organization, FEM, does, what a day in the life of someone working on the ground in uh, difficult situations and complicated circumstances and lack of access um, to getting to the place where you need to get and helping a whole community um, maximize their potential, I think, in a way that works for them. Um, so stay tuned for the second part of our conversation where we'll, where we'll dive deeper into how Anna deals with stress daily um, and then what keeps her going. Welcome back to the Big Life Podcast on Full Service Radio. We are Ingrid Vaishus and Lina Salazar broadcasting live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. Welcome to those just joining us. We're having a conversation today with Ana Maria Gonzalez, Chief Sustainability Officer for FEM, Fundación para la Educación Multidimensional, based in Cartagena, Colombia. During the first part of our conversation, Ana talked to us a little bit about the nature of her work, what she does every day. We spoke about what drives her and what keeps her going um, and what are some of the lessons she's learned. One of the biggest goals of the show is for uh, our listeners to realize and learn that stress management is not a one-size-fits-all approach and there's different ways in which we uh, deal with stress and uh, how we handle it daily. So. Doing, let's get deeper into the conversation of how you deal with stress, Ana Maria. How okay. do you deal with all that's coming at you? And what impact do you feel like it's had on you physically, mentally, emotionally? And what are the tools that you use to handle it? 
I, I, the first thing I have to say is I'm not actually very good. Although what I, although I, 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 I can see why um, people cannot believe that we handle the levels of pressure we handle, um, because some of the things we do can be dangerous, or uh, we get to see people that are suffering very much. So the way I think the way we process this is by keeping the keeping our mind always fixed in the real objectives of things and not the immediate objectives of things. That's something I I repeatedly um, talk to with my team. Forget about the immediate results. Think about the real the structural results. Like if you keep focused on what is the vision and what is the reason that we're doing what we're doing then that really helps you process the immediacy. No. So the small stress of the immediacy becomes very small in proportion to the real situation. Mm -hmm. That's as the first thing. And then, well, basically, um, I try to walk every morning. Uh, I, I, I have the fortune of living beside the Caribbean, so it's a very nice morning walk. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I do, and I, and I really, I, I deliberately try uh, and it's kind of easy because there's not much internet access in remote areas, but I really try to enjoy the road. I, I really try to um, respect and look and be very aware of the ecosystem that surrounds these people. Because it helps me understand. I have even named, in my mind, I have even named some of the geographical places that don't have names for me. Like, I always... Like we're in the there's a there's a place that I love that I, it's called the Silent Lake and so I have kind of my own like mental ceremonies about places that we visit frequently that are absolutely beautiful and the, and the, what I do is not like I feed my eyes with all that instead of being sending messages on my phone or just I don't know I'm just um, working or talking it's just taking in the the beautiful ecosystems that surround these remote areas. It seems that it seems that it's you find uh, those pockets yeah. of of calm and and presence above all in uh, amidst sort of like the harsh conditions in which you work. Um, you mentioned something that I thought was beautiful when we sort of like briefed debriefed before our before the show about bird watching, and I would love you to share about that. Yeah, well, I because because of the beauty of those ecosystems and there's so much water, um, there's a lot of birds around us all the time. And so I've kind of merged into an amateur bird watcher. I bought the book, then I got, and I started like kind of training myself into doing this because I realized it was a really nice hobby that was a very nice compliment. Mm -hmm. I still have to wake early to get to the places. And I still, so I, so we fit in little boat trips to go to the estuaries and, and go to the secret places where all the birds are. And it's been a lot of fun. It's brought in a, another, like, a, a different kind of relationship to the places because it's not only, ah, uh, we have to solve the problems. It's also the enjoyment of the place. And it has also brought in new people to it because now the biologists, it's really funny because the biologists, look for me because they know that I know places, even though I don't know as much about birds. Yeah. 
I know the right people and places because I always spend time in remote areas. So they want to come oh, that's cool. so that they get taken into the bird watching trip. That's so that awesome. I think that's really cute. And the other thing that I forgot to mention is that um, I adopt, and, and that's something that has been very deliberate and has been in the past two or three years, because before I didn't. I fought it, and it, it didn't work. And it is, I adopt, once I'm in the field, once I'm in the remote area, I abandon my way of understanding time and my way of doing things. And I really embrace the way communities and people there make their decisions about time, about how, what are priorities, and I have really stopped suffering about it. Because obviously you go with a very strict agenda, you want to get things done, and you're very westernized about the meeting, the, and this doesn't work. Because the fisherman didn't get fish and he's not going to come back until he fishes something because that's his food. And so well, I learned to flow better in those time frames and in those settings. That's awesome. Instead of fighting them. So a lot of, I'm, I'm going to push you and maybe you're not going to agree with the statement, so I'll be curious to see what you think. A lot of the clients that I work with work in international development, and we always talk about how important it is to find meaning outside of the work that you do day in and day out as a, as a tool to avoid burnout. Do you agree with this? And yeah, I'm curious, do you agree with this? Yes, I partially agree with um, with this, but I think that um, there, is an, there, there is an inevitable amount of burnout associated with the type of work we do mm -hmm. because we're doing very hard stuff mm -hmm. and because it's very difficult to adapt to things that you are not meant to adapt to, like um, impoverished communities, hungry kids, um, killing of leaders. I mean, I have also learned to accept that when I feel mentally and emotionally exhausted, that comes from the fact that these issues are real. Maybe I wouldn't feel that way if I were working in a more abstract way, if I were an academic about these issues and I was looking at them from far. But because I know the names of the kids that are going hungry and the sufferings of their mothers and the... It, it's when I get the sense of burnout, I, I remember that I am a human being and that these are legitimate feelings of exhaustion that are part of what I chose to do and, 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 and not judge me for that. See what yeah, I mean? Yeah, totally. And how so, do you? Yeah, of course I get exhausted. Mm -hmm. Of course I get exhausted and of course I get frustrated, but of course I should. <laughs> I mean, if I didn't, it would be a problem because it would mean that I don't have emotions. Mm -hmm. But I know... Yeah, I am connected to my issues, and I have to protect myself from a very personal point of view, but also I, I, I really like it, the fact that it is this sense of discomfort that keeps me moving. It gives me, it contributes to the sense of, sense of purpose. So it, I, I think it's just a way to reframe it that is the one that makes it work for me. And what, when you reach that point where you're bogged down with all of this this emotional and heavy stuff, how do you separate yourself a little bit or how do you give yourself a little bit of room to recover? Um, I, I, used, I, I didn't used to have free time before um, because I, 
I kind of feel that I, 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 when I was younger, I didn't need it that much. I didn't need those separations. I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I'm more conscious of my health, of my mental health now. But I definitely need one or two days to break apart from the issues and just do something completely different. And I like salsa, and I go dance, and I mm -hmm. deliberately try not to think about the things. I love going to the movies. Um, I spend time with my kids. Sometimes it's not the weekends, because during the weekends I do field work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a Wednesday. I take off Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I, I have, and, and I indulge myself, and, and, and it's also a very deliberate strategy. I have, there's a lady that gives me massage at home, Uh, religiously on Wednesday mornings. I mean, it is like a doctor's appointment. And not many people know that this happens, except obviously my kids and everything. But in my office, nobody knows. But I, it's always blocked in my calendar, and it, I never move it. It's immovable. Because I realize that sometimes there are weeks when that hour and a half is the only hour and a half I have to myself. Mm -hmm. For me, just for me, for mm -hmm. my enjoyment. So, yeah. Anna, when it seems to me, tell me a little bit about this process, finding out the things that work for you, because one of the messages that we like sort of like transmitting in the in the in the show to our listeners is that not only that there's not one unique way to handle stress and you are a proof of that, but that there's also we learn from ourselves through a process of trial and error, what works for us now, right? I mean, yes, age influences. I know I, for me, it's, my, it's the same as I grow older. I'm like, oh, I realize these things are more important. But how was that process for you? Getting to the realization that you needed to, like religiously, you have a massage on Wednesdays, a free time, the bird watching. How did you get there? It, it, the, the answer is really funny. I kind of started discovering it because I like riding motorcycles. <laughs> and sometimes I get to communities. Sometimes I get to communities by riding motorcycles, uh, and um, because they're remote, and the only way to access that, like, there's the the road is completely broken, so the car doesn't pass, so you have to get a motorcycle. And I used to be afraid of motorcycles before, and I had never ridden one until I came to live in the Caribbean. And as I needed to use it more, I kind of realized I liked it, and. In the end, what happens is like now when I have to ride the motorcycle, it, it gives me a sense of freedom. You, I, can't, I can't describe the, the feeling of wind in my face and I'm in the field in a beautiful place all alone. Everybody, like, so my mom tells me, oh, that's so dangerous, something's going to happen. And the only thing I can feel is just this huge sense of freedom. And I realized that what I did was I allowed myself to discover And that, for example, for me, that moment of the wind in my face, the beautiful ecosystem, me on the motorcycle, and enjoy the sense of enjoyment that that instant gives me is a big stress fighter. It's a big one, big one, because it kind of cleanses the rest. It kind of, it's a completely different thing that I feel that cleans of the rest of the feelings. And then I come back to reality, but it's very refreshing. And I realized from your question that I discovered that. I didn't know that about myself. I just allowed myself to understand that I liked it. it so, so I think that the answer to your question is really 
you have to be very honest to yourself about what you like, mm-hmm. right? And so it's funny because sitting behind a mototaxista is like a taxi, a motorcycle taxi driver, is not the favorite thing for anybody. Um, and they don't, and, and, and people can be very judgmental about the people that ride the motorcycles, the drivers of the motorcycles. And I love it. And so I was really honest with myself, and I love it. It's the same with bird watching. I kind of discovered, I let it happen. Like I, I, I started like I started noticing the birds. I started noticing that I liked noticing the birds, and I said, well, maybe this is the hobby that fits me, and this is what I have to do. Again, same with massage. I, I'm not a very massage spa type of person, but I realized. I really like that moment and that silence, and, and I gave myself the chance to make that become my treatment. Yeah? So, whatever. That's I think it's just... No, a, not a whatever. It's everything. It's what you enjoy. Like, really be honest to yourself about what yeah. you enjoy and, and do it, even if it's in the smallest scale. That's the perfect segue to the last or concluding part of our, of our chat, where we ask people... What does living a big life mean to you? And I think you already started to answer that question, but what does it mean to you? Well, definitely um, for me, it means like that the biggest driver of my life is being a good role model for my kids. But understanding that being not a good role model is not being a perfect mother, but being a, a, a complete human being. And being very honest about who I am and my faults and, and, and how I repair those faults and just being very honest about the humanity that is in me. And so for me, being the big life is being able to do that and transmit it. But also, um, I am very um, um, like involved in, and, and I, and, and in, in my community. Kind of I want to be part of... Mm-hmm. making my community, elevating my community and, and making the place that I live in be better. Yeah. I want to be a person that adds meaning and value to the community I'm in. That's awesome. And along those lines, what are you excited about? Is there anything that you have going that you're excited about? I am actually very excited about something that we've, developing, we've been developing for the past um, three months. Mm-hmm. We're developing a tour because the fund, the nonprofit is really hard to fund. Um, so we created a, a tour operator in Cartagena called Cartagena Insider Tours, and all the profits from Cartagena Insider Tours go to fund them. Mm-hmm. And Which in is this, an amazing three months model. ago, we we got a Davis Peace Project. Uh, which funded us to create a new tour that integrates Cartagena, Mompos, which is another heritage city, and Santa Marta. And the secret of that and what excites me a lot about it is that all of the vendors and service providers are ex-combatants from all the different armies that my country has had. So we have ex-paramilitaries, ex-militaries, ex-FARC, and victims of conflict teaming up to produce this very moving, very transformative tour called The Route to Hope. It is a beautiful experience and I'm really excited. Um, we, we launched it a couple of months ago. We're going to have one in December and hopefully next year we're going to repeat it at least 10 times. 
And I'm really, really excited about this route to hope. That's awesome. It gives me, when, you, when I hear you talk about it, and because I've known you for a while and we've been talking about it, it just gives me chills because I think it's just such a fantastic opportunity to see Colombia from a completely different perspective. With that in mind, Com- if people want to reach out, they're interested in any of the work that FEM is doing, because I know you look for volunteers. I know that if people want to sign up for this trip, um, how can they reach you? How can they get in touch with you? Okay, it's, we are in, in, in all the social networks. We're FEM Colombia, um, F-E-M Colombia. Mm-hmm. And um, you can tr- reach me at Ana M. Gonzalez F. Uh, that's also all my all my social networks are with the same one. Mm-hmm. Um, our webpage is www.femcolombia.org, and the tour operator is insider.com.co. Uh, there you can get the tours. That's also a way to reach us and to talk about us. Everybody wants to go to Colombia. Colombia is a beautiful place. So if you want to go to Cartagena. Um, we'll be glad to guide you and the, the, the value of taking our tours is that they found them. Awesome. Amazing. Anna, it was a real honor to have you on our show today and I want, as my Colombian heart is on fire <laughs> and so I want to thank you for the, for the work you, for the, really, seriously, for the work you do and uh, I always say I have three takeaways but I, I feel like I have ten. Yeah, and I too. yeah, so I feel like your experience teaches that handling stress can look differently for each person, right? And it's that it is possible to not burn out um, while you are working in a harsh environment, but also at the same time that you're finding and pursuing your pur- purpose. And um, I, for me, also it was key to observe in your in the description, like in your story and your experience that. Dealing with stress is not the things you do. Dealing with stress is sort of like the attitude and the mindset that you bring to the things you do. Right? It's not about what you do, like the meditation, the green smoothie and whatever. It's more about how, what you're thinking and what inspires you to do it. Hmm? I think that was po- powerful. And last, I think that there are many more, but I'm trying to be short here. But last, I, I like what you said. And I don't know if you were aware of this, but you said a lot of things that are basically ideas of Buddhism. And you said something about uh, accepting and embracing the mm-hmm. conditions because that lessens the suffering, right? And the resistance that you find when you go to these communities with your Western mindset and tight schedule, etc. And that is very powerful. And again, speaks to the fact that managing and handling stress is a trial and error process, but also that it's in the mind and not so much on the things that you do and your attitude towards uh, circumstances. And I think I would add along the same lines, the fact that you said you allowed yourself to feel joy. I think that when we are working in Mm -hmm. difficult circumstances and when we are going and seeing and experiencing very difficult things, we the ability to find joy allows the work to be more doable. And I think that that applies not only to you, but in general, um, to the notion that if we can find joy, then we can feel ourselves to keep doing what we're doing with passion and purpose. And then the one thing that you also said that I think is very practical, and I think Lena and I talk about it all the time, is that you need to figure out how you find those spots where you disconnect from what you're doing. And I think that you've been able, you're a great example of like, recognizing that there is a busy life, that we all have a lot going on, but there are pockets where we can actually find time for ourselves and commit to it. It's just committing to it. That's, that's what we need to do. So, so anyway, thank you. 
great show today. And if, if Ingrid was excited about this one, I'm particularly <laughs> excited about next week's episode because we'll have two women I highly admire. We'll be joined by Patrilia Hernandez, an early childhood nutritionist specialist and body liberation advocate based in D.C., and Kendrin Sonneville, a doctor in, of science and registered dietitian who works at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and she's a researcher. And we'll be talking about the effects of weight bias and weight discriminations on stress levels and our psychological and physiological health. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ana Maria, for taking the time. Um, like usual, if you're enjoying the show, please send, share it with your friends, review us on iTunes. Um, and if you have topic ideas, questions, things that you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us or follow us on Instagram at Ingrid, well, Ingrid underscore wellness for me. And for me, it would be at leave.well.way. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Anna, thank you. Thanks.